here. Like, you probably need to change some things about the way that you're thinking. And so, uh, so there are some things that Scripture presents that don't necessarily sit really comfortable with me. And so, um, at every step of the way, I have to ask myself the question, am I going to trust God and what He says, or am I going to trust myself and what I think is right and what I say? So, um, so I'll, I'll start with an example. I have a natural inclination to think that my time is my own. My time belongs to me. The truth is, my time belongs to God, and what he wants me to do with my time, like, uh, like love my family, love my church, love my neighbors, like I actually have to submit myself to that. So the way I'm naturally wired is to use my time in ways that makes me happy. And what God is constantly teaching is that I can't be as selfish with my time as I am, quote, wired to be. So, uh, so I have to make decisions with my time that actually sometimes consider myself and my own preferences last. Um, and so sometimes, guess what? I don't feel really great about doing that. That's like a hard thing to do, but, but now, Lord willing, the more I practice that and the more, uh, the more I look to the Lord, the more He changes my heart through that process. Now, he's still, he, he, he is still constantly sort of challenging my basic understandings. And so sometimes he challenges, uh, so, so that's maybe not quite so, uh, we don't have moral categories for that. We're kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. He should challenge you on, on how you think about your time and that sort of thing. But then sometimes he challenges things to us that can feel, like the, the challenges that he presents to us feel very immoral to us. Like we, we start to attach moral categories to these things. And so, so today I want to call out that feeling um, I want to figure out what Scripture actually says, right? Because part of the reason this feels immoral is because of a misunderstanding of what's being said. I want to call that out. And then I want to acknowledge that even after we call that out, we still might not totally be comfortable with what it says. So, uh, so as Christians, what we have to acknowledge is that our front line of decision-making, it's never um, our own preferences, it's never even the culture, but our front line of how we should think is, is God and His Word. And so, uh, so I want to submit to that this morning. Uh, and so when we hear the word submit, it carries a few uh, different connotations for us that, do, that, that make us actually shudder a little bit because we can think of contexts in which this word has been used in unhelpful ways. And so I want to talk this morning about what this verse is not saying. Okay, so I want to start by talking about that, what, it, what this verse is not saying. The first thing it is not saying is wives, keep your mouths shut. Okay, so that's an important thing to acknowledge. It is absolutely, and not in any way, saying that, because marriage is a mutual relationship. Uh, there's, there's something that both partners bring to the table. Each person brings something that the other person needs. And so, so wives, guess what? You see things in your, your spouses, in your husbands, that nobody else can see. And sometimes you're the only one who has the ability to tell them about it, right? So, so this is absolutely not saying, uh, wives, shut your mouths. It's saying, like, there's actually a role that you have to play to speak up and maybe even, like, tell your husband he's wrong when he's wrong, right? Okay, so that's a valid thing to acknowledge. Okay, okay, so uh, the second thing, uh, wives, it's not saying wives violate your conscience or sin in any way. So on, on issues where scripture is clear, 
uh, we're to honor the Lord first. The, the Lord is the one that we honor first and primarily. And even on issues of conscience, um, you just need to be honest. Um, there needs to be conversation. There needs to be some, some back and forth uh, where you would state your stance and, and have a conversation to establish some boundaries. The third thing that it's not saying, it's, it's not saying wives put up with any kind of abuse or manipulation. So this comes in the realm of emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, financial, or otherwise. Anything that would fall into any of those categories, abs- uh, like submission is off the table at that point. In fact, I would tell you to go and talk to somebody, and I would even avail myself as a leader. I know our elders would avail themselves because we want to help you solve that problem. So if that is something that you're experiencing, I would not, absolutely not say you need to submit in this situation because uh, there's something greater at stake there. So, uh, so if you're in the middle of a situation like this, um, this, is, this is something that you, you talk to the proper authorities about, right? So uh, a problem that we have uh, is that people have misused Scripture. And this is, this is the reality of when fallen people interact with Scripture, they, they misuse it. And so men have actually taken these concepts far, uh, they've taken them too far. Uh, and as we look back at history, people have, have not rightly interpreted or understood things. And so I want to state emphatically, that, emphatically that, that, that Scripture does not support or condone the kind of behavior from a man that would demand submission on a consistent basis. That would, uh, I, I wanna, even though this is, this is what this verse is saying, as we, there's a whole picture that Scripture provides for us uh, as to the role that husbands and so, so men have used this to, to justify all sorts of awful behavior against their wives. I don't want to say this, like, absolutely does not support that. So that's what this is not saying. So then we have to talk about what is it saying exactly. Um, the first thing that it's saying is this. In marriage, men are responsible to lead. So, so culturally, this is hard for us to relate to. Um, but biblically, this is based all the way back in creation. So as we look at the Bible, it actually draws our attention back to the beginning, to the foundations of how God established creation. And into the, into the very fabric of creation, God hardwired this picture of, uh, of husband and wife that was to show the rest of creation, the kind of relationship that exists between Christ and the church. Like, that was God's intention with marriage. That's kind of the picture that he's showing us. So if we look at Ephesians 5, 25 to 32, there are all of these things that it says about the picture that marriage is of Christ and the church. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ does the church. And then verse 31, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 32 says, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So God, he writes onto creation this beautiful picture of the redemption that he was going to bring about in Jesus, and he does it with marriage. So, so at the very beginning of creation, his intention is to kind of tell everybody, this is, this is what the relationship between Christ and the church should look like. So then men have to lead and love their wives in the very same way that Christ leads and loves the church. 
Not even, not even trying to hold on to his very life, right? So guys, we're going to come back to that in a second. That'll be exciting because uh, that's a pretty tall order. Uh, but the second thing that this verse is saying, wives, give your husband the gift of following his lead, right? So that's a decision that you make. I want to acknowledge that. But something like this can actually be very helpful. Submission is a gift. This is not something that a husband gets the, the privilege to demand of you. Um, and I want to say that if, 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 there is, if there's somebody who's consistently demanding submission, I would say that that person is not leading like Christ. That person is not leading like Christ. In fact, that, that kind of pattern is equated to spiritual abuse in my mind, where somebody is consistently saying, demanding that somebody must submit. But when a wife gives her husband the gift of following his lead, what it does is it, it empowers him to lead and love more effectively. It's a part of the sanctification process that, that, that Christ uses to actually make your husband a better leader and a better person who loves you well. So husbands, uh, we need to understand that this is a gift that our wives give us, and it's not something that we demand of them. Now, we might request it in certain situations, but our energy would be, would be much better spent on loving and leading our wives like Christ loves and leads the church. So that's the second thing it's saying. The third thing it's saying is probably the most important. Jesus, not the husband, is the Lord of the house. So if you look, it says, as is fitting in the Lord. In fact, after a lot of these relationships that we're going to talk about this morning, uh, Paul reminds us that the Lord is first. The Lord is first. The Lord is primary. And so, so Jesus is the Lord of the house, not, not the husband. So the role is played first. The role you play as a wife in your, in your role, it's played first for Jesus and his glory primarily. So your, your faithfulness in this role should be motivated by Jesus and done in worship to Jesus. And when you have this understanding, it actually makes living with and loving and following the lead of a really broken person a little bit easier. <laughs> because, because the one that you're really following, the one that you're really loving is Jesus, and he loves perfectly. He leads perfectly. And, and so much so that he would even give his very life to give you the promise of salvation. Okay, so, so that's wives. So then let's look at husbands. Buckle in, guys. Here we go. Uh, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So I want to first of all state that in the world of household codes, this is something that's really countercultural because household codes in the first century actually called the man the lord of the house and said, you kind of get to do whatever you want. You have to manage your household well, right? But, but it expected that wives would fully submit and obey their husbands. Um, it, it gave really no place like that there would be any sort of charity. or there was no, That expectation was not explicit in household codes, but in this household code it is. Husbands, love your wives. Men were actually told to rule. Women were viewed as inferior in the original household code. So this is a very countercultural sort of way of talking about the household. So um, what, does, what does love mean? We have to figure that out. And so we ask the question, okay, how did Christ love? Because if that's our, our picture of what it looks like to love, so how did Christ love? Well, Christ loved by sacrifice. 
So Christ sets aside all of his preferences and even the way, like he, he goes to the Father, like he's getting ready to go to the cross. And this is what he says to the Father. He says, Lord, I, Father, I don't want to take this cup of your wrath that you are about to give me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Right? So, so we see that Jesus has this preference where he doesn't take the wrath of God on him for the sins of all these people. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He sets that preference aside for the sake of saving his church. And so husbands, sacrifice your preferences so that your wives can thrive. Sacrifice your preferences so, you, so that your wife can thrive. So this is, uh, this is thriving in the spiritual realm. This is thriving physically. This is thriving relationally. As a holistic person, you do whatever you can to set aside your preferences to create a situation in which your wife can thrive. So I want to push pause because uh, if you're like me, you've probably realized at this point how far you've actually fallen short of this standard right? That expectation that we would love our wives like Christ loves the church, that's a heavy expectation. That's something that, quite frankly, I don't think any of us do perfectly. I could guarantee it. And so our first temptation as we look at that failure is going to be to beat ourselves up. Um, and I want to say that that's primarily a self-focused perspective, perspective. Because the moment that we see our failure in this situation, because this should show us pretty clearly how we have failed to love our wives well, right? So, so the moment that we see our failure, we need to go straight to Jesus. The Jesus who bore our sinful, selfish failure in his flesh on the cross continually offers us grace and forgiveness. Because the more we do that, the more that we realize that, that we don't seek to play our roles as a spouse primarily for our own sakes, because we often tend to fail, or even primarily for, for the sakes of our spouse, because guess what? That's a broken human being who you are either submitting to or you are trying to lead, right? Um, we, we don't play those roles primarily for those people, because those people honestly are going to inevitably end up failing and disappointing us. Primarily, we seek to play this role, whether it's in leading, whether it's in following, whether it's in loving, whatever it might be. Primarily, we, we seek to the, play this role so that Jesus is honored and Jesus is made much of in the relationship. Okay, so that's husbands and wives. And we're going to look at, at parents and children. So parents and children, you belong to Jesus. Verse 20 says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So, so uh, we need to actually call out something. Not many of us in this room are currently being raised by our parents, right? So, uh, so I thought, okay, so I'm going to talk to a room full of people, and I'm going to say, children, obey your parents. And there aren't going to be really like that many people in here to heed this command, right? Because they're all upstairs right now. So, um, so... I, wanna, I wanted to talk about something different, like, because uh, it is important that in the church, we would become the kind of place that supports children obeying their parents. And so, so I asked a, a different question. The question I asked is, how can the people of this church support our parents 
who are raising kids. So that means that actually we all have a role to play in this. This is not just a message to parents and children. This is a message to all of us. First of all, we can speak well of parents to their kids. Speak well of parents to their kids. So, so we can tell kids about the strong character qualities that we see in their parents. Now the contrast to this is that we would speak poorly about parents to their kids, right? And that's actually a dangerous thing because it's really important that, that, that parents have the kind of impression, or that kids have the kind of impression of their parents that they would actually want to obey their parents, right? They would actually want to seek that for their parents. And so, so we want to speak well of parents to their kids as often as we can, that we could highlight the good character that we see in parents. The second thing that we can do is that we can help kids be thankful for the ways that their parents care for them. So I, I, when I was in high school, um, I had friends who, like, they had, gr- like, house to live in, and they had food on the table all the time. Like, they had everything that they needed to, like, survive, and not just survive, but thrive. And on top of that, their parents were pretty lenient with them. Like, they gave them a lot of freedom to kind of go and and do whatever they wanted to do. And I would hear these friends of mine complain about their parents incessantly, and it drove me up the wall. Um, And I'm not saying that, like, I was the perfect kid either. I want to clarify that. But, but what, what what I didn't understand is like, like, are you not considering what your parents are, are sacrificing to make sure that like, you can survive? And not just survive, but like, you can go to school, and you can have time with your friends, and you can have uh, like, good relationships and all of this stuff, and you're like, constantly just complaining about what you can't get from your parents. And so, uh, so the, that's kind of a negative way of addressing it. But the, the positive way of addressing it is just to help kids like, constantly reflect, like, what do you have that, that if you didn't have your parents you wouldn't have it all. Like, help them, help them think about the things that, that their parents do to care for them, to make sure that they can survive. So that's the second thing we do, can do. And then the third thing we can do is this. When you see a kid obey, you celebrate it with them. So this is, uh, this is what it says. It says, this pleases the Lord. When, when children obey their parents, this is something that's really, really pleasing to the Lord. And so when we see this, we can, we can celebrate it. Um, we can let them know, hey, God smiled when you listened to your parent in that moment. Um, in your role as a child, we can let them know. In, in, in your role as a child, you actually have the opportunity to bring glory to God with the way that you obey your parents. And so a general principle that uh, th- this church can recognize and, and help support our parents is this. Uh, a child's view of their parents greatly influences their view of God. So the best thing that we can do is support our parents and, and support even the view that our kids have of parents to help influence their view of God, that it might be positive. Um, okay, so that's, that's children and parents. That's something that we can do to support that. Uh, and then uh, verse 21 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children, at least they become discouraged. So, so we need to understand parents generally have responsibility over the character development of their kids. Um, and, and so the rule that's being applied here actually goes for both fathers and mothers. But this instruction in particular, uh, it's looking at dads and it's saying, dads, the way that we respond to our children has a powerful 
formative effect on the people that they will become. It has a very powerful formative effect. And so, so there's character shaping going on even in the very ways that we respond. And so I want to talk to you about what provoke means. Provoke means to make someone bitter, resentful, or rebellious. Right, so, so when we respond to our kids in certain ways, whether it be, it could be in anger, it could be in passivity, it could be, I mean, it really depends on who your kid is, the things that they make meaning out of, and how, how they are developing, right? And so, the, and you know what? Each kid probably needs a different response, because they're all so different, right? And so, um, so fathers, what this is saying is, fathers, be aware of what your kid needs, to make sure that you don't respond in such a way that might provoke them. That might make them bitter or resentful or rebellious. And so then the result of being provoked is, in verse 21, discouragement. The kids become discouraged. So when parents, and in particular fathers, when they respond out of anger or frustration, when they fail to see the needs uh, of their children, or even, even the desires, the things going on inside of them, when they fail to seek to understand their kids... Uh, when they ignore their kids, when they remain distracted from their children. All of this has the power to make a child lose heart. They become discouraged. They lose motivation. They get stunted in their character growth. So parents, pay attention to the power that your responses to your kids have on the kind of people that they become. Okay, that's parents and children. Finally, servants and masters you belong to Jesus. 22 says, bond servants. Obey in everything those are who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Bond servants, translated, literally is slaves. And that means that we have to address something. There's a, if you, if you know skeptical people at all, uh, there's a really common objection that is raised against the Bible. And that is, the Bible supports slavery. So we actually have to deal with that. Um, we have to talk about that, the implications of that, and, um, and what the Bible does and does not say. So uh, here, um, we're actually going to take a sort of a, a bit of a tangent. I'm going to talk about five facts about the Bible and slavery, because we do have to deal with this concept. We can't come to this text, because I want to be really honest with you, this very text has, is something that was used in, in the earlier, earlier America to justify all sorts of injustices in the slave trade. So, uh, so I want to talk about five facts about the Bible and slavery. First of all, there are things that we have to be honest about. First of all, the Bible does accommodate and regulate the institution of slavery. So, uh, so there's nowhere in Scripture, actually, that you'll see slavery condemned. There's not one place. In fact, uh, it's a general expectation that some of the people of God will actually have slaves. In fact, it's not even a stretch to suggest that a significant number of Israelites had slaves. They were masters of slaves. Okay, so that's the first thing that we have to acknowledge. The second thing is that Old Testament 
biblical laws actually gave slaves a lower status so that there were more rights afforded to a person who was not a slave than there were afforded to a person who was a slave. So some examples of this. Um, slaves were considered property and could be bought and sold. That's Exodus 21.8. Um, masters could beat their slaves as long as they didn't die um, and, and as long as they didn't die, the masters wouldn't be punished. Okay, and that's Exodus twenty-one, twenty-one. So that, uh, that means that at the very least, Scripture has in view the fact that owning people as property is somehow viewed as a, a morally neutral concept. And this, this probably, and it should rightly, rub us the wrong way. Um, now, I want to talk about why it rubs us the wrong way so much. My third, the third fact up here. The slavery referred to in the Bible is very, very different than our modern understanding of slavery. So, um, so one's status as a slave had nothing to do with one's race or ethnicity, whereas in uh, America's past, it, it was entirely based on race and ethnicity. People of one race, people from Africa, were uh, condemned and basically said, like, you are of a lower status, you are of a lower personhood, and because of that, you need to be relegated to this role. But that was not the way that it worked in the ancient Near East. Um, Masters, in fact, masters often educated their slaves. Sometimes their slaves ended up being better educated than even they were. So, uh, so because uh, a master understood if they were, there was somebody who was their slave, they would invest in them because uh, they, if they could succeed well, it would mean good things for their household, right? And so even as we look at Joseph, Joseph was a slave, by the way. He gets really well educated and rises to the upper echelons of, like, uh, of ruling in Egypt. Right? The same thing happens with Daniel. Daniel's a cupbearer in the king's house. And, and as, he, as he sort of goes through this role, we see him rise up in Babylon to a certain status. And they're both slaves. They're both playing the role of slaves, but their masters are educating them and pouring energy into them. And so, so the other thing that we need to know is that slaves were not at the bottom of the, uh, the socioeconomic pyramid in the ancient Near East. Slaves could, in fact, even own property and own their own slaves as well. So it's not, um, it, it, was, it was common for a person actually to choose to become a slave. And the reason that they do that is because they were in poverty. Um, they, they had, or, or they, they wanted to rise through the social ladder somehow. Uh, they wanted to pay off debts. These were the reasons that people would, uh, would choose to leave slavery. And so the fourth thing that I want to acknowledge is this. Modern expressions of slavery are explicitly condemned in the Bible. So, and um, there, were, there were evangelical Christians who refused to acknowledge this, who justified all sorts of things. But Exodus 21, 16 says this. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So you know what? People from Europe went to Africa and stole people 
and put them in ships and brought them over to the states and used them as property, abused them, and justified it. Use the Bible to justify it. And here, Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. The entire Western slave trade was built on this strategy and it's punishable by death. So those who were, who were slaves in this context were at the bottom of the social ladder. They had no hope of recovering from their status and Christians justified it. But the Bible actually makes no allowance for this brand of slavery that led to the forced exodus and systematic oppression of African people. So when the Bible speaks of and makes allowances for slavery, the categories that the Bible is talking about is very different than the categories that we have. So we need to understand that. We do need to understand that. That's going to be helpful. The last thing that I want to talk about the last fact that the Bible tells, about, tells us about slavery is that the gospel has massive implications for slaves and slave owners. So uh, if you have a chance this week, go and read the book of Philemon. Uh, Paul meets this slave. He's, his name is Onesimus. And uh, this slave has apparently fled away from his master. But this guy meets Paul, and then he becomes a Christian when he meets Paul. And you know what Paul does? He sends him back to his master with a letter. And in that letter, Paul is pleading with his master Philemon to release Onesimus so that he can serve Jesus more fully because Paul understands that the gospel has implications for slaves and slave owners. Okay, so uh, now that we've addressed that, now that we know the perspective that we're coming from, and even like the, 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 the things that skeptics are bringing to the Bible to try to understand it, but then like the, the very real reality, some of them hard to sit with, that exists in the Bible. Um, I want to I get back to what it, Paul is writing. So, uh, so we can rest assured that what Paul is doing is he's regulating this sort of morally neutral institution, right? Uh, which does not resemble our modern understanding of slavery. And so I want to note that when we apply this passage, the closest, this is not going to be a one-to-one correlation, but when we apply this passage, the closest correlation that we have um, is sort of our employee-supervisor relationship. And so I do want to look at that because I think there are some really valuable things that we can draw out for application from this. There's some good principles to draw out. So verse 22 says this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And verse 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So, when it's time to work, employees, when it's time to work, do your work for Jesus. That's what he's saying. When it's time to work, do your work for Jesus. So I don't know who your boss is. I don't know who your supervisor is. I don't know what kind of person they are. But when it comes time to work, it doesn't really matter who they are because the one that you're primarily working for is Jesus. So, uh, what does this look like? Well, you know, keep your commitments. If you make a commitment, keep your commitments. Uh, kill. Oh, you, you need to kill passive aggression and gossip in your workplace. Because the moment that you take part in it, you show the people in your workplace that you're no different than they are. 
right? But, but, but this kind of attitude, it actually like breaks apart. It causes this unity, and so it's unhelpful. So you need to kill passive aggression and gossip in your workplace. You need to work hard all the time, as much as you can. So, so like, uh, we can like try to steal time here and there, take little bits and pieces, make sure that um, we're not working. But when you're working, you need to make sure that you're working. Okay, work hard all the time. Uh, when necessary, and this is necessary, and this is actually, this is a privilege, this is kind of the place where, where the, the one-to-one co- correlation doesn't really work, because slaves couldn't have, like, conversations with their masters about, hey, I don't think this is working out, you know? Like, but, but employees could have those conversations with their supervisors, and so I would say, when necessary, have really honest conversations with your supervisors. That's going to be a better solution than going about slander and gossip and passive aggression. So uh, that's, that's that. Verse 24 says this. You do all this knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. That actually, like, when you, when you are working in your role for the Lord, yes, you get paid for that. And yes, you might even get certain status for that. But when you, when you are doing your best to represent Jesus in your workplace, the best reward that you get is no promotion. It's no amount of money. It is the fact that at the end, you get the promise of a glorious inheritance with Jesus. You are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 25 says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong." He has done, and there is no partiality. What he's talking about here is the reality that those who have not come to trust Jesus, those who are not serving Jesus, he's just calling out a reality. You know, the payment that they get, they get paid back for their wrongdoing. But because you, because you're serving Christ, because you're following Christ, because of what he's accomplished for you, the payment that you get is an inheritance. So the motivation, that's what it's talking about here, the motivation. Why do we work for the Lord? Because in saving us, the Lord has gifted us far beyond any amount of money that we could ever make. And we get the promise of this heavenly inheritance. And then he gives us the warning of judgment. So that makes, actually, that makes this verse transitional. When he talks about the judgment, um, when, he, when he says that the wrongdoer will be paid back for their wrong, there is no partiality. What he's talking about He's doing something to where he's bridging between the bondservants and their masters because then he gives a really good reminder to the masters. He says, masters, supervisors, treat your bondservants, your employees, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So supervisors, here are some, some questions for, for self-examination for you. Have you written down, this is like, this would solve so many problems in workplaces, I swear. Have you written down your expectations for your employees? Uh, Do you play favorites with your employees? Are you an advocate for your employees? Do you advocate to them? Do you build them up? Do you you advocate to, to other people within your organization to make sure that your employees can thrive? Do you communicate in sincerity? with your employees? Or do you say one thing to them, and then when you're talking to other people, you talk about them sort of behind their backs? 
Are you taking opportunities in your role as a supervisor to reflect on the grace that your master has had towards you? I know that there are certain standards that we have to meet. I, I certainly wouldn't expect, like, I want my doctors to not ever, like, be allowed to make mistakes, right? That's like a realm of, like, uh, maybe not have so much grace there. But uh, I'll have grace towards the person, but they need to not be in the job, right? So, uh, but in places where we can allow space, where we can allow the opportunity to make mistakes, do you give your employees that space? Because your master has given you so much space. The kind of master that Jesus is, that he would take on himself the burden of what you have failed to do. Okay, so that's masters, that's, uh, that's supervisors. So, so what? Uh, what can we walk away with? The first thing is this. Jesus is the first person that we are responsible to in every single role that we play, no matter what. So guess what? We lack faithfulness in these roles often. We do not play these roles as we should, and yet Jesus offers us forgiveness because that's the kind of master that he is. And so the question that we have to ask is, how will we respond to him? Not how will we respond to the broken person that we're trying to have this kind of role and relationship with, but how will we respond to Jesus, our master, who constantly lavishes upon us grace and forgiveness? So that's the first one. The second, so what is this? And it's a question. What if I'm called to submit to or, quote, obey somebody who isn't a Christian? So whether this is in um, marriage or whether this is in the workplace or whether this is a relationship between kids and parents, this is a question that we have to take into account. And what we have to remember is that the other person in the relationship, the other person in the role, is not primarily the object of our faithfulness. Our faithfulness is for Christ. And so now what you have an opportunity to do is that through your obedience to Christ in that role, you actually have an opportunity to shower blessing upon that person that you're in that relationship with, whatever it might be. So actually, wanna, I actually want to tell you a story about my wife, Andrea, and her work. Um, so Andrea works, she's a personal assistant to the owner of uh, a, a wig shop, and, and she works for this person uh, who is not a Christian, who just, she's kind of grew up Catholic, but she doesn't really have any interest in, in the things of God and, 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 and that kind of thing. And um, she was plagued, before Andrea showed up, she was plagued by assistants, probably like five or six people, who like would steal from her. Not just steal time, but like steal money. Steal things from, uh, from the salon that she was in. And so, so what would happen is that uh, she would get very frustrated with these people. Not only that, but, but they weren't great workers. They didn't get a lot done. She saw all of this stuff. And so, so as she was in this hunt for an assistant, she was, she was plagued by a bunch of people who, who just really did not do their jobs well and, in fact, were really unfaithful with their role. And so then Andrea brought, uh, she came along into this role, and then she brought her gifts to bear on this place where she works. Uh, everything that she is, she, came, she comes and works in faithfulness to the Lord. And, and now guess what? This boss that she has, there's nobody stealing from her now. 
Um, she knows that she can trust Andrea explicitly, even with like the managing of a lot of uh, a number of aspects of her business. Right? She brings Andrea's opinion into discussions, into decision-making processes, and actually like makes better decisions because Andrea's voice is at the table, right? So Andrea has actually become a highly valued asset to this company, and, it, and it's not because of anything that she's done, but she just knows like this is, this is what it means to be faithful to the Lord, right? And so the Lord then showers blessing on that place where she is because she's not primarily being faithful to the person who's there because... She, her boss has flaws, right? So, like, that's a reality. But she's not primarily faithful for her boss. She's faithful to the Lord. And in her faithfulness to the Lord, the, the Lord is actually bringing blessing upon that place. And my prayer is that in the roles that we play, in the places that we get to walk, that we all would see the opportunity for the Lord to shower blessing in those places that we exist by simply our faithfulness to Him. Not to any particular boss, not even to any particular spouse, but primarily our faithfulness as to the Lord, and that we would see him bring blessing because of that faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you have, have showed yourself to be in so many significant ways. That to us, you are a good and a gracious and a loving master. Lord, and, and I, I recognize that the people that maybe we're married to, the, the kids that we're trying to raise, or the parents that we're trying to obey, or the, um, the, the bosses that we're trying to follow, or all of that. Lord, I, I recognize in all of it that it's all broken people. But Lord, our faithfulness is not primarily to those people. Although we get the opportunity to love and celebrate and appreciate those people. Lord, our, primar- our, our faithfulness is primarily towards you. And so, Lord, may you show us who you are. Would you reveal to us more and more the kind of master that you are? And Lord, as we look at our own failures and we bring them to you, Lord, would you continually shower on us the grace and the forgiveness that you so freely give because of your death on the cross.